Right, Mary, question for you. Are we still saying Happy New Year in the second working week of January? I know you have some really good rules for this sort of stuff, no Christmas before (laughs) Halloween and stuff. So what's your take on that? I mean, I think we're all still warming up, aren't we, for the year? So I think it's absolutely legit to say Happy New Year. I think probably, what do I think? I reckon next week might be the first week where it stops feeling reasonable. But loads of people are off. I I feel like a lot of people took a bit more time off this year over Christmas. And so loads of people, it's their first week back. So I think it's totally fair. Okay, right. So first week back, first, right. So it's like lowest common denominator. If it's anyone's first week back, we can say Happy New Year still. Okay, cool. So someone who's off till the end of January, we're going to be saying it for a very long time. (laughs) Oh, oh God. I have more questions, though. The really important question, Christmas, the turkey, barbecue, roast potato, the whole Mm. shebang. How did it go? Did it work? It went. It was touch and go for a while. We had a pre-Christmas COVID drama, which I'm sure people also had. Um, So my other half got COVID and his 10th day of isolation was Christmas Eve. So we were due to have people over on Christmas Eve. We pushed everything back to Christmas Day, had a very stressful week isolating from each other in the house so that I didn't get it and push everything back even further. Put a lot of pressure on my cooking skills. I'm not usually the chef of the house in the normal everyday life. Oh, that was yeah. Just that, yeah you, you said you more have the sous chef role normally. So that, yeah, yeah. yeah had a real step up there. Yeah, okay. It, it was a real step up because partly we'd already bought food that we were going to, well, that Dave was going to cook. And then I had to cook all that food. So I did a, my first meal was a roast chicken dinner, which was, you know, great, but, you know, a lot of, a lot of stress really for me. And then really it went kind of downhill after that point. So I started getting a little bit cocky, thought I was quite good at cooking, <laughs> made up a few few recipes. <laughs> what didn't go down all that well, but but there we go. But yeah, so we just scraped by feeling very lucky because I know not everyone quite managed those timings this year. But so yeah, 11 adults, three dogs on Christmas Day. That they all get on with each other, the adults that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no arguments, no dogs killing other dogs. So yeah, we got away with it. And yeah, the turkey in the barbecue was a success. Wow, great. The roasties in the oven was a success. So yeah, yeah, can't complain. Dan, you had a few, a couple of weeks off well-earned break, did you? Yeah, yeah, we we went off to Portugal like we have done last few um, Christmases, which was absolutely lovely. Um, in terms of food wise, it's more of a sort of cross between a French and Portuguese Christmas. There, my my in laws are French, so we sort of um, go with that, and that's a little bit more. There's a bit of oysters, a bit of seafood, a bit of crab, longestine sort of stuff, a little bit of duck as well. French, um, especially from that region, love a bit of duck. So no turkey for me, but yes, it was um, it was it was it was very very nice. Excellent, excellent. Anyway, enough looking back. Let's look forward a little bit. And Mary, wondering, you haven't seen any 2022 forecasts kicking around, have you? (laughs) Just one or two, Dan. Just one One or two. two. Just just on every web page I I open at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, all the rage. It's all the rage, aren't they, this time of year for some reason? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So so the idea of today's episode is to start looking at unpicking some of those forecasts, um, pulling out the really big themes that we're seeing um, across those. But before we jump into that, I guess it's worth just mentioning, we left last year's final episode saying, read, read a book. It was Trillions was the book that we were reading over Christmas. Um, we will still be doing an episode with a book review. It's just a bit later in the month than, than we'd indicated. So if you're panicking because you haven't finished reading it, good news is you've got a little bit longer. So watch out for that episode later this month. And, and I really enjoyed reading that, actually, by the way. I don't, I don't know what you, you thought, Mary. But it's, it's a really great book, well-written. It, it, it goes through things quite fast. It doesn't doesn't dwell on stuff, but goes through the whole history of Wells Fargo, BGI, BlackRock, Vanguard, gets into all the personalities, and then he wraps it up with a really nice look at what does it all mean for sort of passive investing. So, yeah, you never would have thought that a book about passive investing would be a page turner, but um, I can promise you it is. So it's worth getting into that. Yeah. Yeah. You sort of think it could be quite technical and not very fast paced, but 
fast paced is the kind of book I like. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. Exactly. Anyway, uh, my prediction is um, a good show today about forecasts. So um, on, with, <laughs> on, on with the show. <laughs> Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So we're here talking about 2022 forecasts. And to help us along with that conversation, we're delighted to be joined for a second time by our colleague, Anais Coldwell-Jones. Anais is a member of LCP's macro team. Anais, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me again. How are you both doing? Very good, thanks. Good, thank you. Raring to go with the year and with this first episode of the year. So Anais, I think we heard before about your role and I guess how it's split between a sort of more research focused and obviously that's where the macro fits, but also the client facing role that you've got. The other question we always ask our guests, which we have asked you before, but I understand we've got a development, is what we should know about you that won't show on your CV. So do you want to give us the update there? So I last came on this podcast, I think it was first half of 2020. And since then, I have really got into Formula One, one of those many people that watch Drive to Survive on Netflix. And I did a fantasy F1 team and it actually did pretty well for 2021. So yeah, something which is a bit fun. And by pretty well, what are we talking here? So I came 42nd in the UK out of over 200,000 people and about 200th in the world. Wow. Over a million people. That's incredible. And that was your first ever time you were doing the fantasy F1? My first ever fantasy team about anything. I've since then thought about doing fantasy football, but the way I did the F1 one was by doing a spreadsheet and optimizing it. I feel for fantasy football, there's just too many variables. So not sure whether I want to go down that massive spreadsheet route again. I love how analytical that is. (laughs) Brilliant. Are we saying it was a bit of an inefficient market? There was information there that was able to be sort of I think so. I've um, separately considered whether there's a sort of side business that I can set up to my LCP career about selling my spreadsheet and teaching people my tricks. But yeah, TVC, I guess I'd have to run that past the compliance department. (laughs) Absolutely. As you know, I'm a big F1 fan myself, but as a Lewis Hamilton fan, I'm still sort of somewhat in traumatized or in denial from the last race of the last season. So I'm not sure I'm ready to talk in too much more detail about that yet. Yeah, maybe let's move on to forecasts Let's quickly. leave it there. Let's leave it there. Who's going to win the title this season, though, talking forecasts? Well, the heart wants Lewis, but we will see. What does the spreadsheet say? <laughs> spreadsheet hasn't been done yet. Uh, hasn't been done yet. Okay, well, let us know when it has. Absolutely. So forecasts, obviously, forecasts are all about looking forward. We have a little bit of a complex with forecasts, don't we, Dan, because of the start of this podcast series in the first place. Long-standing listeners may remember we started the podcast in February 2020. We started the series with an episode about forecasting, which quickly we had to record a new start to because of everything that happened in March 2020. So I guess the thing I was going to say is with forecasts, of course, that's all about looking forward. But the temptation is to start by looking back and I think probably is helpful to look back a little bit over 2021 in the context of what we thought was going to happen in 2021, if any of us can quite remember what January 21 looked like when we were in our third lockdown, I think it was, and everyone was getting a little bit bored of sitting at home and time was doing funny things at that point. So Anais, do you want to take us through some of the, I guess, key or common predictions that we had at the start of last year 
and we can maybe just discuss a bit how they panned out and then we'll move on to what happens next. I'm going to start by being a bit critical. I think in general, forecasters' lives were made a bit easier going into the beginning of 2021. Because if you think back a bit further and what happened in Q4 2020, we actually had two massive events. So we had the announcements of the vaccines and the successful results that they were having in trial. And we also had the results of the US presidential election. So those two pieces of sort of good news for markets really, really helped set the scene. And I think did make forecasters' lives a lot easier. On the back of that, we had expectations for pretty positive GDP growth in 2021. It really did kind of depend on the country that you were looking at, particularly in the US. Everything was very optimistic given the election of Biden and the one trillion sort of economic support package. And then also there was quite a bullish market for markets, in particular equities, just really on the back of the sort of positive economic news. And that definitely has been proven right. I mean, that was a good prediction. And you might say that the outturn on the GDP front was even better, maybe, than what people were saying. The US maybe is one example of that, even UK a little bit sort of better. So maybe that's one win for the forecasters. What else were people saying? So going into 2021, there was a lot of discussions about what was going to happen with tech. So Joe Biden, you might be aware and our listeners might be aware for a number of years now has been sort of criticising the social impact of these kind of large tech companies, things like to do with the way that they collect data, kind of impacts on mental health. So they have really been coming under increasing criticism over a number of years. I think going into the year, we all thought there would be some sort of big tech backlash. But in practice, that didn't really happen, at least in the US, which is sort of the market that we all sort of had in mind. Totally. I definitely remember that. I mean, I can remember a couple of economist covers that were talking about tech backlash, tech lash, whatever you want to call it. And I do remember that, I mean, there was the hearings on Capitol Hill in the summer, weren't there? I remember each of the tech CEOs and some of the founders got hauled in front of Congress. But other than that, not much happened. And in fact, some of those bigger tech names, Google, Microsoft, Apple had absolutely amazing share price years. So you certainly wouldn't look at that chart and say there'd been much to hold them back, would you? So I guess that's one that the forecast has got wrong. Then. Do you think those two things are linked? So having a very good year share price wise, presumably mainly put down to continued lockdowns and use of various tech as one of the key drivers. Is there any link to then the lack of backlash or it's just that the two sort of they're independent, but one outweighed the other kind of thing? I mean, it's a really good question. I feel like one area in the world where we actually did see some of that big tech backlash coming through was China. Yes. And what we had there is we had the backdrop that China had continuing lockdowns, albeit not in the same way that we did in the UK. So in China, as part of their quest for a zero COVID strategy, they had sort of more localised regional lockdowns. So there was quite a lot of kind of lockdown overall throughout the year. But I think that the key thing that drove it for them was the regulation. So some tech companies halved in value over the year. So overall, I think regulation is the key factor. Don't tell me the forecasters are trying to claim that as a win. The tech backlash happened because of the China stuff. I'm not quite sure that, but no, you're absolutely right. And I mean, the China one's interesting because the prediction at the start of the year was that China would have very strong growth GDP-wise, which of course it did, reasonably strong. But of course, the equity markets in China doesn't look great, particularly the tech looks awful, and also quite a few debt-type worries as well with Evergrande and stuff like that. 
I don't know how to read that China forecast. It was kind of right about the GDP growth, but kind of wrong about tech and debt and a lot of other areas of the economy and, and markets. So maybe the lesson there is that China is a tricky one to forecast and get right, which does tie back to our episode, Mary, with Chris, wasn't it, from T.O. Yes. Price? Worth a listen if anyone hasn't listened to that yet. And he was making some similar points. I think his keyword was multifaceted, wasn't it? Or words to that effect, at least. So an interesting beast. Yeah, just to wrap quickly on the US tech point, I think it's interesting. My take would be there's a few angles to it. One of them is a little bit political. So it ties in a little bit with the political wins. And I'm sure we'll get to talk a little bit about political forthcoming events this year. There's a little bit of that to it. But people try and group it all together as if it's one big thing. But the critiques of each of the firms are quite different in some ways. So it's not like they're all going to get nailed by one piece of legislation. And I think it is quite fundamental legislation that would have to change to really nail them, so to speak, because under the existing sort of antitrust framework, it's a little bit hard to make a super strong case. But the one maybe where it seems like probably the most public opinion against anywhere might be Facebook, I guess you might say at the moment. But otherwise, they seem to be sailing on. So we also had, I suppose, continued working from home. We probably all expected an element of continued working from home, which I guess kind of was in line as far as it can ever be in line with expectations. I'm not sure any of us would have known exactly which months we'd be at home or not. I saw in one of the articles that I read that one of the 2021 predictions was work from home here to stay. I don't think they can take much credit for that, seeing as towards or over the summer of 2020, things started opening up again and everyone was still working from home. I'd like to make that prediction now, if I can, and then take that as a win. (laughs) Well, this is it. This is part of the thing about forecasting. It's like if you forecast something that's absolutely consensus and very likely to happen, like, can you really score that as a win? So it's almost like the really useful forecasts are stuff where you're saying, where there's an event that's not consensus, maybe Generally speaking, people think there's a less than 50-50 chance it'll happen. But something that you think is more likely than that, those are the good forecasts. I should note quickly, I think we all read quite a neat article from Visual Capitalist, didn't we, that was went through a load of 2021 predictions and tried to score them. It's well worth a read, actually. We'll stick that in the show notes, I guess. People can peruse that and see what credit you'll give the 2021 forecasters. For final point on 2021 then, Anais, unexpected surprises. What have you got for 2021 on that front? I think the inflation story is the main one, isn't it? Going into the year, or firstly, if we look back at 2020, I mean, 2020 was a year where we had unprecedented negative economic growth. Sorry to use that word, but it just (laughs) needs to be done. And actually, inflation kind of surprised us and was a lot higher than expected. So the final 2021 figures aren't out yet because it does take time, but predictions are 4.6% for the US and 2.5% for the UK. This is compared to what we thought about a year ago would be 2% for the US and 1.6% for the UK. So pretty different. And there were kind of a number of factors driving this, such as sort of a mechanical rebound from economic growth, COVID lockdowns creating supply issues, energy prices. We did have the episode in, I think it was early December, wasn't it, down with John Camfield looking at some of those drivers and which of them, if any, are here to stay. And maybe we'll hear from you, Anais, on what you think inflation might do. I appreciate inflation is a very, very long-term element in complex. Yes, exactly. But let's think about what it might mean for 2022. So shall we move then on to 2022? And I guess what are some of the sort of common themes that you're seeing in the forecast that you're looking at as we go towards the year? So in terms of the picture, I would say it's overall positive, but expected to be slightly less so compared to 2021. The following figures are taken from Consensus Economics, which is a firm um, which in turn surveys over 200 financial and economic firms. So I'm not kind of taking the viewpoint of one particular one, but more of a market average. 
So for the UK, we're expecting economic growth of 4.7% over 2022 compared to 7% over 2021. So still pretty positive and definitely above long-term levels, but we're expecting that to level off. One of the key things, as we've talked about previously, is inflation and how long that is sustained for. At the moment, we think inflation is going to be 4.1% for the year, which is kind of significantly above the Bank of England's 2% target. Absolutely. And higher than we're ending 2021. So a bit more growth in inflation expected to happen over the course of the year. We're expecting it to continue, kind of keep ticking up over the first few months of the year, ending the year, kind of average state of about 4.1%. Can I just quickly make my standard pushback that I always do when people start talking about growth numbers and stuff? And this is just my little beef, so you don't need to respond to this and this, but like (laughs) every single forecast, is it like obligatory that forecasters have to start their forecast with a number for GDP growth or something? Because like everyone does. And I push back on that being particularly relevant for anything else. But also in a bigger picture, and call me a radical, I feel like we ought to be trying to get to a place where we're happy with zero growth in our finite world where those GDP numbers, a lot of that is simply extracting stuff, non-renewable stuff from the ground and selling it. And so we ought to be getting to a place where investment returns and things can work when GDP growth is zero in the developed world. But it's so entrenched in the whole financial system that we have to grow. Everything else flows from that. It's kind of hard. Not expecting you to answer all that. If you can solve that for me then <laughs> uh, by next time, then that would be great. But that's my little beef and we can move on. I can't solve it for you. But what I would say is that I think you're right. The numbers aren't everything. But what I do think it provides is useful context. So people have lived through 2021, they saw kind of what that meant for them. And if they have a figure that can help give them an indication of how things might play out for them over the year. I suppose from my ignorant perspective, I see those GDP numbers having, well, I clearly work in this industry, but not being necessarily an economist by trade. And I look at those numbers and think, I don't know what that means. What does that mean my life will be like over the next year or the last year? And did last year feel like 7%? I couldn't really tell you what it was that made it feel like 7%, but maybe I need to do a bit more soul searching on that one. But I guess there is a slightly wider question, and it links a bit to the point Dan just made about is that the right or is that a good indication of what markets will do? Because I suppose we're talking here about economics and I suppose there's sort of two strands to it. We care how our lives will be and clearly inflation is extremely relevant for that. We also care probably what investment portfolios might do and what might drive those. So I suppose what kind of, as well as GDP, if you're looking at that as a factor, what other factors are you looking at that might give us a clue as to what markets might be driven by this year? So markets are a little bit different in the sense that economists try and put a kind of concrete number, like I've just said, on what they expect GDP growth to be like over the next year or so, but people don't really do that so much with financial markets. I wonder why. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little bit harder. Yeah. I think the overall consensus is that it will be a bit more shaky this year um, than the previous two years. So looking back to 2021, we had global equities at the MSCI world returning over 20%. I think as I always say, I'm quite a sort of sceptical, kind of gloomy person when it comes to the world of like finance and economics. I think this year will be a more volatile one. I don't think we can expect the next 12 months to be as rosy, especially given concerns around inflation that we are seeing. Yeah, I'm actually just thinking back, 2021 was probably one of those rare years where GDP growth and equity markets were actually quite well correlated because GDP was very strong, equity markets are very strong. My contention would be that's the exception, not the rule. And yet every forecast assumes that it's the rule and that one sort of follows the other. 
I remember back to a conversation we had with our colleague Natalie Brain, and she made the point that, look, yes, any given forecast is not likely to be right, but it does help to have a framework around this forecasting thing to be able to articulate what your base case is. And then as you get new information, new data comes along, you can then decide whether you want to keep that as your base case, whether you want to move to a sort of an upper or a lower type case. It just gives you a sort of a framework for navigating a complex, uncertain world. So she sort of convinced me on that. I love to sort of tease and knock forecasters a little bit. It's probably, see, I can see what she's getting at. <laughs> and I guess, I mean, when we talk about what markets will do, it's very much outside of the control of an individual or group of people or government, of course. But I do sometimes wonder whether some forecasts can almost become self-fulfilling prophecies. It depends how you frame it, doesn't it? It depends how specific you get. Exactly. Yeah. There's certainly a skill to framing forecasts in a way that's kind of vague enough that allows you to. So claim let's everything. take Anais's vague forecast of slightly lower returns and a bit more volatility in markets, and maybe just unpick some of the drivers for that. I suppose we've got some of the examples from last year. So of course, China. We had the GDP strength coming through. We have potentially the markets being a little less positive than expected. What are the sort of consensus estimates looking like in terms of? What happens next with China? Do we continue to be a bit shaky because we feel like we're in a bit of a shaky place now? So Anais, thoughts on China for 2022? I mean, it's a good question and it's definitely not an easy one. I would say over the short and medium term, there's definitely a lot of uncertainty with China. I mean, we saw that last year with the tech regulations that no one saw coming. I would say over the long term, in my mind, there's definitely reasons to be bearish. I mean, China's experiencing some pretty structural significant changes to its economy, be that demographic changes, which are impacting things like the amount of new people buying properties. And then that might feed through to individual companies such as Evergrande and then GDP. So lots of different factors to consider. And I think over the long term, definitely a lot of reasons to be bearish. It's interesting because it ties in really closely with our conversation with Chris Kushlis from T. Rowe Price and the point he was making, we were joking there that every three or four years, forecasters sort of lob in a China hard landing as a prediction for the year ahead, which is sort of what's happening a little bit this year, but it never quite pans out like that and been left wondering why. And his point, I suppose, was that external forecasters don't always understand China that well. And that while it might be true, there's a slow deleveraging and slow kind of unwind of things over a long period of time because the way that economy is managed it's never going to manifest itself in like a Lehman Brothers type moment in any given year so you sort of get these Evergrande scares and no one quite knows whether it's a big deal or not and sometimes you can get very worried about it when you look at the size of some of the numbers but because of the way that the government there has to manage that process down it's likely to be a bit more orderly than what happens in our developed markets. Or if you're a skeptic which maybe I am given I'm about to say this they got it wrong last year and they were disappointed on the downside. So this year, forecasters are thinking, oh, damn it. If I guess lower, I guess for a bit of volatility, then I can't be disappointed and challenged again on the downside. But hey, I'm sure it's probably the reason you gave, Dan. <laughs> Can I just add one more point on the China thing? I do think this technicality over the listing status of companies and stuff is something to watch out for because that was obviously what drove some of the share price drop of like Alibaba and Tencent, the idea that some of these shell entities that are listed on US exchanges but own economic states and Chinese companies, they exist in a legal gray area in China. It's almost like the Chinese don't love that. And actually the US are also pushing delisting of Chinese companies out of the US as well. So it's one of those rare things that the US and China both agree on. They would like to have less Chinese companies listed in the US. And yet the biggest ones still are. And so that is more than a technicality, I think, in terms of how things are. But that is quite heavily priced into those stocks already. So who knows? We've come this far. And I'm amazed we've come this far without talking about the Fed. I was going to ask, of all the forecasts you've read, Anais, were there any that didn't talk about the Fed? 
There was a few, but I guess really? they were probably more focused to just equity markets. And even if they didn't, I feel like they probably should have mentioned it, <laughs> given the impact that rates has, even on equities, especially those ones which are kind of more growth oriented. Where are we in terms of expectations for what the Fed is going to do this year? With the Fed, it's a bit easier to see what the thinking is because they've got something called the Fed dot plot, which shows the kind of voting intentions based on all the data that we have at the moment and um, for all the members on the kind of committee. And this shows that officials expect to raise the Fed funds rate three times in 2022 and three times in 2023. So that's really, really significant. What sort of magnitude of rises are we looking at then over that? So that's six rate rises in two years. So I think in total, over the next year or so, we're looking at rate rises between one and two percent. So not huge, but I guess in the context of where we are in the low rate world we are in at the moment, it will make a meaningful difference. And I was listening to something the other day that was saying that it wasn't long ago, I think only about a year ago, when the first rate rises were not predicted until 2023-24. Now they've brought forward an awful lot. And we've seen that in bond markets a little bit the last few weeks, I think, haven't we, in some of the longer dated yields rising to reflect sort of some of those rate hikes. That's our base case is the three hikes. And I guess it's great for all the financial market sort of journalists, isn't it? Because every rate hike is like a little mini news event that we get all sort of excited about. So I suppose we can look forward to a lot of that this year. And there might be a bit more live than they have been in the past. We've not seen many rate hikes, have we? I guess a lot of that just depends on what happens with inflation. So the Federal Reserve will be rising rates in response to inflation because when interest rates go up, theoretically, consumers and businesses are less incentivized to spend their money and more incentivized to save because you now get a higher kind of interest rate in your bank account. So at the moment, given all the sort of supply side issues and upwards pressures on inflation, those kind of expectations for rate hikes are fairly significant in the kind of context of where we are now. But if things do change and inflation pressures do sort of subside, then I wouldn't be surprised at all to see those expectations come downwards, given that the economy isn't on a super sturdy footing. Well, this is the thing about the moment here, isn't it? Is markets are trying to feel like they're trying to price the whole trajectory of the next rate hiking cycle, which is very hard to do, obviously, and very sensitive to little nuances of Fed messaging and minutes coming out and the next data point. It is actually quite meaningful because it potentially changes the whole trajectory. And what you hear a lot of forecasters talking about is they start talking about policy errors. Is the Fed going to go too late? Does inflation overshoot? Does it go too early? Does it go too hard, fast? Does it go too high? All that sort of stuff. And that's kind of where the debate is, I suppose, isn't it? Is there a risk of the Fed acts too late? Could it act too early? Could it sort of overshoot? Do you recognise some of that from what you've read, Anais? And any thoughts on that dynamic? I think so. I think that's one of the biggest, I know we we're going to talk about this in a little bit. I think what you've said, Dan, is one of the biggest sort of non-consensus surprises and um, that could be lurking. I guess one of the key things that people are talking about for 2022 is the potential of stagflation. And what that means is an environment of high inflation followed with weak economic growth. Um, the Fed, like all the other central banks in the world, has to tread really carefully at the moment because inflation across most developed countries is as high as it has been for 20 plus even longer, 20, 30, 40 years. So they're incentivized to kind of lower interest rates and keep inflation under control. But at the same time, the economy isn't a super strong fitting. So yeah, definitely one of the biggest risks to watch out for in my view. Yeah. And as Dad just Dan just alluded to, I nearly called you Dad then, that's bad, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. As Dan just alluded to, 
the availability of data and I guess the transparency that the Fed is giving us does really, I guess, it really means that markets can move quite quickly. So whereas historically there were only a certain number of checkpoints and it was really they made a decision and then it got announced and then the market moved. And now we see markets moving based on set of minutes from a meeting, let alone the actual decision itself. And actually, we have seen in recent history the decision itself I don't know if disappointing is quite the right word, but surprising because not as much happens as was expected. So you're sort of saying that could happen again this year, Annie. So markets often tend to have already priced in rate changes before they even come out. So central bankers are providing more and more guidance, be it through minutes, be it through speeches about what they're going to do in order to try and kind of comfort investors as much as possible. It's interesting, isn't it? Because when we say markets, that's doing a lot of work there, isn't it? The word markets, because the most obvious market is the kind of market for interest rate futures and government bonds and those sort of things where you can look quite specifically at what it's pricing in. And I think you're right. If you look at that today, it's kind of in the realm of three to four hikes from the Fed that's priced into those markets. The bigger question, but probably harder to answer is what's priced into equity markets, isn't it? Because that's where you've had all these sort of arguments of people saying, well, low rates benefit the sort of high growth, for want of a better word, FANG, big growth stocks in the US are benefited by low rates, whereas they haven't suffered too much as expectations of rates have actually risen quite a lot. So I don't think there's a clear story for me of how that plays into equity markets, whether equity markets are just not reflecting the same hikes as the bond markets right now and how they'll react. That does seem quite uncertain to me. For me, you never know how equity markets are going to react. They can go one of two ways. They can firstly see a rate hike as sensible because economic growth is improving and therefore kind of central banks can afford to take that down. Or they can just take the second route, which is I think what we saw towards the end of 2019, where a few small rate rises sends them into kind of mini chaos and panic mode. Yeah. And then there's the bad news is good news type dynamic where they think the bad economic news is going to equal lower rates and more stimulus. And that's actually good. So it's all perfectly clear after the fact, isn't it? But trying to figure that out beforehand is hard. Actually reminded me of something else I was going to mention, which is that I think a lesson from 2021 is even if at the start, someone gave you a working crystal ball and you could foresee the biggest macro event of 2021, which was probably the inflation numbers that came out at the end of the year. Even if you knew what they were and you were able to place some market bets based on that, you might not have made much money or you might have even lost money because interest rates didn't quite react how you would have thought. Equity markets, you probably would have said, goodness me, inflation is going to be that high large growth stocks in the US are really going to suffer. Interest rates are going to be way up. So you'd have been short Microsoft, short Apple, you'd have been short bonds, but that wouldn't really have got you very far. So it's a lesson, isn't it? Absolutely. So any other non-consensus forecasts that you've seen, Annie, that could surprise? I think in a lot of senses, it's hard to say a lot of the biggest things, if we look back at the end of 2021 were things that you just couldn't have predicted, so such as the Suez Canal crisis, which did have a really significant impact on the economy and also some markets. But there's no way you could have predicted that. I still find that mind-boggling. You hear on the news that a boat has gone the wrong direction in a canal, and you just think that's how can that happen at this stage in society and have so many repercussions? But anyway, sorry. Dan, did you have one or two? I saw you were about to speak. I've got a few other random ones I'll throw out there. I mean, just to note another good piece that we all read. And we mentioned Visual Capitalist Review of 2021. They also did a summary of a lot of predictions for 2022, which was quite interesting. A couple of things they had in there that I thought worth noting was 2022 being the year of the worker. 
employment is pretty high in the US, pretty high anywhere, unemployment being low, a real shift in labor dynamics, maybe workers being in the driving seat a bit more. Not sure what that means for the markets or the economy, if anything, but maybe just some differences there in the way different kind of stakeholders are being treated and the power of different stakeholders is one to watch. I do think this point about, they've called it the changing digital ecosystem, which covers rather a lot is worth dwelling on a little bit. I mean, we talked about the tech backlash last year being a little bit of a nothing burger effectively, but there's a lot to say, I think, about crypto, digital currencies, Web3, all those sort of things that people kind of love to snigger at, let's be honest, but done a bit of reading on that recently. And I do think it's a real thing and that, but it could go one of two ways. There could be some real key adoption events this year. So you might see, for example, China coming out with a digital currency, let's say. You might see a G20 currency adopting Bitcoin as legal tender, not out of the realm of possibility. On the other hand, you could easily see a sort of tech dot-com boom kind of washout where all the kind of, all the rubbish, and there is lots of rubbish, obviously, all the rubbish gets washed out and values really, really suffer. I don't know how much that would affect general markets really, if that did or not. But I can see that being a much bigger thing, or at least something that is worth coming onto the forecaster's radar, if you like. It was like a few years ago, suddenly China was something that every forecaster needed to have a view on. I kind of feel like digital ecosystem, Web3, crypto is almost there now as something that needs to be forecasted, which in itself is quite interesting. I agree. It's too dominant to ignore it now. You can't just say, well, the whole, everything will operate without me thinking about this. It feels like it's a relevant consideration. On your first point, Dan, I completely agree. And I obviously read the same article, but the angle that sort of sprung to mind for me was I know a hell of a lot of people who got to the end of last year. And because 2021 was supposed to be this year where we were coming back out of lockdowns and COVID was going to be a thing we were living with and it wasn't dominating our lives anymore. And then it sort of did dominate our lives and we did have lockdowns and people pushed back life events and holidays and all that sort of stuff get to the end of the year and say oh my gosh I've just not had a single holiday or I've not taken enough time off and it's all just kind of times move very strangely and cases of burnout and that sort of thing I think that linked to the kind of workers having control and power there will be and again I can't really predict which way it goes but it feels like there will be a bigger focus on work-life balance exactly where that lands I don't necessarily know and exactly what it means for the economy I'm not quite sure either but it does just feel like there's a lot of people saying enough is enough I now need to work out what my life looks like in this weird world that's probably going to change every year for the next few but I can't just keep putting it off anymore. Yeah that's an interesting one and it's also something which ties in nicely with things that I've seen on wage inflation being something which is a key thing to look out for so because more people want that sort of work life balance In areas like the US, you've actually seen less people go back to work post-pandemic optionally than people predicted. And because of that, you have a lower supply of labour, broadly an unchanged number of employers. And that is kind of pushing up wages. Interesting. Yeah, that's probably the most obvious way it feeds in, isn't it? Yeah, I wonder with workers organising themselves as well, there's talk of sort of workers' unions and stuff cropping up at tech firms and stuff that you wouldn't have thought of a little while ago, whether there's something in that as well that we'll see a bit more of. I wanted to touch on two other areas that often feature in 2022 forecasts, and that's politics and geopolitics. And as you already flagged, the really big political one is quite far in the rear window now, which was the US election. Obviously, no election here in the UK for another couple of years. So that's not a thing. But I guess there are kind of two or three maybe worth mentioning. US midterms, a lot of seats in Congress up for grabs. And I guess the consensus there is that the Democrats will lose the House of Representatives. That seems pretty likely. That's the consensus at the moment and likely to have some implications for 
key bits of legislation that Biden's working on, for instance, the sort of latest tech developments, which we've already touched on. And then I guess from markets perspective, though, people often say that markets actually quite like stalemate because nothing changes and that's broadly good for markets. So the thing that's really good for markets, obviously, is tax cuts, which probably aren't coming anytime soon, but certainly won't be corporate tax rises if there's a divided government there. So that seems pretty likely not going to be a surprise and markets pretty broadly fine. I think I've seen some research in the past showing that the best outcome of a US presidential election, so not quite the same as this one, only the sort of kind of midterms going on, is that a divided Congress is actually best because you have the sort of social policies and kind of political agenda of the Democratic Party, which tends to be sort of market friendly, anti-war. But in terms of policy towards corporations, tax cuts and things like that, they've then got the Republicans policies as a little bit more dominant. It's kind of been divided anyway, really, hasn't it? With the Senate being 50-50 and the Joe Manchin, the kind of swing voter often siding with the Republicans and all that stuff. So it's kind of almost, you might say that's kind of continuation of no change. But there are two other elections that I noted that happen. There's a Brazilian presidential election and a French presidential election. Not sure there's much to say on that. I mean, Brazilian election, I don't want to start trying to turn us all into Brazilian political <laughs> experts, I suppose could be interesting for emerging markets. French presidential election, I'm not sure that is massively market moving or not these days, really. I think probably both. The Brazilian one in particular could have repercussions for emerging markets. You're right. Probably most related to dealing with COVID, if I'm honest, as a theme for this year, policy in relation to getting past or getting through the pandemic, I think will be quite relevant. Interesting note on the French one. It looks like even the more far right candidates in the French election now are not focused on leaving the EU and leaving the euro anymore. And so if anything, that I reckon that means that it's even less relevant to markets what happens, because if any of the top four or five contenders win, there's not going to be really a big push to instigate loads of change there. Geopolitics. That's one, I guess that is, it's a perennial risk, isn't it, in these forecasts, Anais? So what are the things that are cropping up there? I mean, you have all sorts of conflict. I guess one of the key ones that you've still got is China, US in terms of the sizes of the two economies and the impact that that will have. A bit closer to home, we're seeing a bit more kind of conflict and geopolitical risk in the Middle East, which we're starting to see more. But in terms of things that impact the MSCI world, I still think the US-China, although risks are a bit lower there, is one of the key things to look out for. It's interesting because I think as we started last year, that was a concern. Obviously, we had the sort of good news around Biden being voted in. And it feels like that worry that we had a year or a year and a bit ago never really quite came to fruition, but it doesn't mean it went away completely. It just seems to have gone a little bit dormant for a while. Yeah, what you mean, the whole trade wars sort of thing? That was a perennial forecaster's sort of pet forecast for a while, wasn't it? I think we have to say, take that as a loss for the forecasters because that never really, well, I mean, it sort of happened, but it didn't really affect markets or the economies too much, I don't think. So the ones, I guess, are sort of obvious, isn't it? But an obvious flashpoint there, I suppose, is around Taiwan. I guess one has to always have that on the list. Is it's The more you read about that, the more you sort of realize it's a somewhat precarious situation, shall we say, politically, that could easily go bad at any moment. And then obviously right now, the Ukraine-Russia kind of flashpoints as well. So That's another interesting one. I don't know how much that would impact markets, in theory. I'm not sure. I just don't have a sense for it. I agree, actually. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I mean, and what you're kind of saying, it just might not really, other than those particular markets, which are not that relevant to the world. So they are in the Emerging Market Index. We would have sort of clients that do have exposure to them, more so Russia. But I guess if we think about what happened with Afghanistan a few months ago, 
despite kind of the sort of tragedies going on there, markets in that area were relatively muted. I do find that interesting. It could be a weird situation where it could be awful from a humanitarian perspective, but actually not particularly noteworthy for markets. So, Anais, we've just been through and spent a good deal of time talking about lots of predictions and forecasts for 2022. Do you feel that 2022 is a harder year to forecast than 2021? I realise that's an impossible question, but I couldn't not ask it. I think if we look at where we were a year ago, everything seems a bit more positive. And I think it is easier to make forecasts when everything is going well. I think the fact that we had a lot of news announced at the end of 2020 made forecasting 2021 slightly easier. And you have seen, I think it's the IMF have come out and they've actually pushed back their date for publishing um, their quarterly economic report on the back of Omicron and all the uncertainties there. So yeah, overall, I would say it does seem harder. Fair enough. And it will be interesting. I don't know. I'm sure there are studies on this. I've never seen one myself, but looking at, so you get really early 2022 predictions. I don't know what the earliest are, probably early December. And then you'll get some much later ones where actually you're already a month into 2022. That's cheating a little bit in my view. But looking at how those forecasts change over that sort of two month period where there's thousands of forecasts being made. Maybe that's a project we can... On that point, actually, I often think there's... I put this point today in the doc, the forecasting versus now casting point, that often it's hard enough to actually say what is happening right now. And so a lot of forecasts effectively amount to now casting, like, for example, talking about inflation, that's kind of, well, that is here, that isn't with us now, it's not really a forecast, but that is kind of what a lot of forecasters are doing. In a complex, dynamic world, I guess maybe it's not even easy doing that. So maybe we should have called this a January forecast and we'll do another one in four weeks' time. February, yeah. <laughs> Please, once a year is enough. Come on. I'm tempted to agree with you there. So I think that that probably gets us towards the end of the episode. We've probably had enough for the year, do we think, of talking about forecasts? We'll see if anything big happens and we need to reforecast it. Anais, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great. It's been a really fantastic first episode back and hopefully leaves everyone feeling they at least have some thoughts about 2022, even if they don't quite know what will happen. So Anais, what's the one thing that you want us to take away from this episode? I think for me, it's just being aware of the risks around forecasts and that they are simply just that. So additional things will happen um, regardless of whether we want them to or not. Some of them hopefully good. Often the things that disrupt forecasts tend to be negative. So it's just about kind of being prepared for that. What do you think is the most underappreciated thing about 2022 or about investing generally at the moment? For me, investing, I think a lot of people might think about investing and just think, oh, it's boring numbers. See that sort of graphic of stock exchanges that you can often see in the television. But it is really just how much it relates to the real world, which we've seen more than ever over these past few years. And Anais, do you have any recommendations for the listeners? Yes, I do. So I started listening to the Guardians Today and Focus podcast towards the end of last year, and I love it. What I like about it, it's that it's a podcast that you can dip in and out of and you don't need to listen to every episode and every episode is kind of different just based on what's going on in the world but the range of topics is really really wide and not usually particularly cheerful <laughs> but nonetheless interesting so I've listened to one on the impact of the amount of hippos that Paolo Escobar brought to Colombia and the impact that that has on Colombia's biodiversity so at least something that I don't read about every day they also have plenty on COVID as you'd expect but definitely some more niche ones than that. Nice. Sounds great. We'll add it for the show notes. People can check it absolutely. out. Absolutely. Well, Anais, it's been an absolutely great conversation today. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Thanks both for having me. Thanks, Anais. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut, but join us again next week for another episode. Take care.
podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.